page 615 in the Pew Edition Bible. I'll be reading the entire chapter this morning, but our text will consist of verses 1 through 5, the first part of Isaiah 55. Please follow along in your Bibles. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness of the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May I ask, please, that you keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 55, the first five verses. Let's come together in prayer for just a moment. Father, we pray for your Spirit's illumination, that we would not only master the word before us, but more importantly, we we would be mastered by that word. Fill our hearts with hope and joy, and also with humility and repentance, so that we may see your goodness and experience the fullness of your blessing as you have described it and announced it through your servant Isaiah. Bless this word to our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do when your whole world falls apart? When all your dreams, your plans, your expectations come crumbling down, everything disintegrates, 
into a pile of ash? That's the question that was posed to the people of Israel by the prophet Isaiah. Earlier in this prophecy, you may well know, the Lord had announced through his servant that there was impending judgment, captivity, the destruction of their homes, their cities, and of course, their beloved temple. Could there be a future? Could there be any hope? It was not simply the economic devastation, as terrible as that was, not only the humiliation of being carted off, picture in your minds the people of Israel being carted off in chains. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon, for example, for a ring to be put through the nose of a prisoner, and you attach a chain to that ring and lead them by the nose into the land of captivity. How humiliating to be treated just like an animal, livestock. It was not only that question, but the question of what about the promises of God? What about the promise of salvation? What about the Lord using his people Israel, as it were, as a beacon to attract all the nations to the Lord? What's to become of that? And you could translate that into the modern context as well. The word that's being preached today in this congregation is preached to people who are broken, many of them, many of you. You've experienced brokenness. We all experience it in some way, either directly or indirectly. Hopes that we had that are diminished or altogether wiped out. Plans we had for the future that never came to fruition. Disappointments, hardships, aches and pains, disease, and even death. What does the Bible have to say to us? What does the Lord through his servant have to say to us? Well, in the context of that, that sense of bleakness and doubt and even despair, the Lord says to his servant, come, come, buy, eat, and live. I want you to notice that with me. Come, buy, eat, and live. That's the message the Lord has for you today. So let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit has to say to you this morning. And to understand that call of the Lord to come, you have to remember what he builds upon here in this second part of Isaiah's prophecy. In the moment when things seem to be the darkest, the Lord says, comfort. Comfort my people. What was crooked will be made straight. The mountains will be flattened out. Why? Because I am sending my servant. I am appointing my servant, my messenger. We could say the Messiah who will bring deliverance, who will fill the people's hearts with hope and joy and celebration. What formerly was in the dark will now be exposed to the fullness of the glory of God and its light. But how will the servant do that? Well, think of the preceding chapters in Isaiah's prophecy, preceding chapter 55, chapter 53. Perhaps one of the clearest examples in the Old Testament of the nature of the Messiah's work. How would he bring this about? He would bring this about as a substitute, as one who, like a lamb, is brought before the slaughter. 
He will not object. He will not resist. But he will offer his life as a ransom for sin. What we, that is, what you and I could not do for ourselves, God is going to do for us. That's the gist of Isaiah 53. God himself will offer his own son as the propitiation for sin, as the sacrifice for your sin. There will come redemption. And then in chapter 54, the outcome of that is the Lord says to Israel, expand your tents, which is saying build bigger homes. Make bigger plans. Because you understand that the message of salvation is not going to be limited only for the people of Israel. You and I are the benefactors of that very truth. The gospel is going to go out from Judea to Samaria to all the ends of the earth. And they shall know that Jesus Christ is Lord both of Jew and of Gentile. We'll see that this evening in Titus chapter 2. Salvation has come for all people, rich and poor, slave and free, Gentile as well as Jew. That's the glory of the gospel. And in light of that, the Lord says now in chapter 55, come. The word that's used here in the English, come, really, you ought to understand the the nuance of that word. It's like a vendor on the street saying, come, come. Come and buy. Come, take of my wares. Or someone once said it's like a vendor at a ball game. Get it here. He's enthusiastic. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. So the first question we'll ask is, Who are those who are invited? To whom is this invitation issued? It is issued to those who are thirsty. You saw a pattern I trust then from the songs we sang this morning. The loving kindness of my God is more than life to me. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. Thirst. It's an image that runs throughout Scripture, doesn't it? And it points to the fact that you and I were created with a desire for something more than ourselves. We will never be satisfied. Mankind will never be satisfied unless one goes outside of oneself and ultimately to our Creator. We were made for God. And when man no longer lives his life for the glory of God, in service to God, in acknowledgement of God, there is this thirst, there is this craving, there is this desire. No matter how successful, no matter how rich, no matter how many things he has accomplished, no matter how much power he exercises, there still is this gaping void, the Bible says. You remember what Ecclesiastes says. One of the most significant passages, I think, in all of Scripture, where the preacher, the Kohalas, says, 
and you placed eternity in man's heart. Speaking of God. You placed eternity. God has placed eternity in your heart. What does that mean? That means very simply that whatever business ventures you're involved in right now, whatever plans you have for your home and your family, whatever vacation or retirement plans you may make for yourself, all of that pales in comparison to what God truly made you for. We can enjoy his good gifts. We do enjoy them. But they are never ends in themselves. They are always pointers to God who is ultimate. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants after water, so my soul longs after you. That's a description of the world in which we live. We have people who are extremely successful in so many different ventures. And yet there's a hunger and a thirst that cannot be quenched by the things of this earth. You remember how Jesus spoke of that, for example, in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. Very strange for Jesus to find a woman at noon at the well, right? You come in the morning, you come in the evening when it's cooler out. You don't come in the middle of the day. She comes in the middle of the day because she has a checkered past. She thinks she's doing Jesus a favor because she's going to draw some water for him, give him something to drink. And he says, no, I have something better for you. I will give you a water that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. And he touches upon a raw nerve. In her heart, does he not? Where's your husband? Well, she's been married multiple times, and and the man she's living with now is not her husband. That's why she's there in the middle of the day. She's a pariah to her community. And Jesus says, if you drink of the water I give to you, which is to say, boys and girls, if you believe in me and put your trust in me, I will quench that thirst as no other thing can quench that thirst. Later on in John chapter 6, you recall, Jesus is feeding the multitude. But he makes this observation. He said, you're following me because I keep your bellies full. I mean, in that day, who wouldn't want that? In the days before refrigeration, in the days before supermarkets, Of course we would follow this miracle worker who could multiply loaves and fishes. What a great way to live. But rather, Jesus says, seek after the bread that comes from heaven. Unless you eat of my body, unless you drink of my blood, you have no life in you. We were created for something greater than ourselves. Have you admitted that to the Lord? Do you speak that way in your prayers to the Lord that you were made for him and your life has meaning and purpose and satisfaction when lived in his presence for his glory? Are you thirsty? And have you come to the Lord to have that thirst quenched? But not only the thirsty 
our address, but he says, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Isn't that a strange expression? You who are without any money, come and buy. (laughs) You who have no strength, no motivation, you who acknowledge your spiritual poverty, ah, Does that not remind us of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy apart from the Lord. And there are some people who look upon that and say, see, this just illustrates that religion and Christianity, these things are just for those who are weak. Strong people don't need this. But Jesus says, all of us, I should say all of you who walk upon this earth must acknowledge your own spiritual bankruptcy. All mankind must acknowledge the need to come to Jesus as the one who imparts his gifts without money and without price. What does he offer? Secondly, he says, come to the waters. He's talking about refreshment. Picture in your mind an instance you may have had in your own life or something you've read or something you've watched, a person walking in the heat in the desert and their tongue just sticks to the roof of their mouth and they would give anything just for a drop of water. You think of the man, the rich man, begging from hell to have just a drop of water touch his tongue to be relieved of his misery. Water is refreshment. He's talking about the gospel. The gospel brings refreshment. But also, he says, come by wine. What does wine symbolize? More than just refreshment. Wine in the Bible, contrary to what many people will try to tell you, wine is considered a blessing from the Lord. Wine symbolizes happiness, joy, celebration. It is symbolic of the kingdom of heaven. Small wonder that when Jesus performs his first public miracle, what does he do? He turns water into wine. Not as just some kind of nifty trick, look what I can do. It is his announcement, not only that he gives his approval to the institution of marriage, our marriage formulary mentions that, you may recall, but it's also to say this is the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven brings joy, it brings celebration, feasting. But of course, that became an issue of controversy in Jesus' public ministry. Remember, Jesus' critics would say, why is it your disciples? They're not like John's disciples. They, your disciples, they, they eat and they drink, they celebrate. John's disciples, they fast. What's going on here? What's wrong with these guys? Jesus, recall, you recall, says, When the bridegroom is with you, you celebrate. A time is coming when the bridegroom is going to leave. 
and then there will be fasting. And when Jesus institutes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he doesn't use grape juice. He uses wine. Wine is symbolic of the kingdom of heaven. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant that brings joy and celebration. And then milk. Water gives refreshment. Wine speaks of celebration. Milk is sustenance. It gives strength. It builds us up. It also speaks of the richness, the lavishness of the Lord's blessings of salvation. The land of Canaan was described as what? The land overflowing with milk and honey. And so the prophet says, come. If you're thirsty, come. By all means, come. You will find refreshment. You will find joy. And you will find the richness that ultimately satisfies. Without money, without price. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But then notice in verse 2, the question that is posed. It is a profound question. It is a question which every one of you this morning ought to wrestle with and ought not to overlook or dismiss. You ought not to leave here this morning from this sanctuary without thinking about this question. Because it speaks just as much to us today as it did back in the time of Isaiah the prophet. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That is a description of the world that you and I live in. That is a description of the world apart from Jesus Christ. They labor, they strive, they toil, thinking that they will find satisfaction only to discover that they never will apart from Christ. They spend every ounce of energy thinking, this will bring me happiness. It's the if only question. If only, and then you fill in the blank. If only this would happen, I would be happy. I would be satisfied. I would be contented. If only I had more money. If only I were more popular. If only I were more highly esteemed by my colleagues at work. If only I were more attractive. If only, if only, if only. It reminds me of what the preacher in Ecclesiastes describes in terms of all the avenues he tries to travel down that he experiments with. Will money bring me happiness? Will physical pleasure in and of itself bring me ultimate happiness? And he discovers they're all dead ends. It is all vanity. It is like the breath you see on a cold day. It's there for just a moment and then it's gone. It evaporates. I have my own contemporary translation of verse 2 and it goes something like this. Why do you dumpster dive for your food when the Lord promises you to give the promise to give you the best that you could possibly ever eat? Have you ever witnessed someone dumpster diving? 
I remember as a kid, my dad, as you know, was a farmer, is a farmer. We used to bring our vegetables to the wholesaler at South Water Street Market. It was something that I, as a kid, could see, and I saw things that I think most of my classmates never saw, coming from nice suburban homes. Here was this farm boy going to South Water Street Market in the middle of the night, and I remember backing up to the loading dock and the headlights of the truck shining upon boxes or crates, and you see men crawling out of them. And I remember asking my dad, what is that? What are they doing? Well, back then we didn't call them homeless. We called them bums. Those are bums, son. And you see people walking the streets, scavenging for food, anything of substance. Going to South Water Street Market, maybe seeing some fruit or vegetables that were thrown out. Maybe there was something defective about them or something rotten. They would eat a portion of that. It's a very graphic image that stays in your mind. You don't forget that when you're a 10-year-old boy living out in the country, that there are people who live their lives like that. But Isaiah says, this is the nature of mankind apart from Jesus Christ. They're dumpster diving. When God promises filet mignon and lobster tail or whatever your favorite food may be, listen diligently to me. That's a nice, smooth English translation of the Hebrew, which says, listen, listen to me. It's emphatic. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in the richest affair, says the older translations. Delight yourselves in the richest of foods. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis wrote a number of years ago in one of his essays. He said the problem with mankind is not that his desires are are too great, but rather that his desires are too small. He is too easily satisfied with small and insignificant things. And he used the illustration of of a boy in the slums of London, out in the street, making mud pies in the street, thinking this is the best that life can offer. Or if you like, you think of the old, old Milwaukee beer commercial. Two guys sitting around a campfire, they crack open a can of beer, and what do they say? It doesn't get any better than this. And you want to say to yourself, really? Now, we all know what he meant by that, but really? It doesn't get any better than this? But C.S. Lewis said that little kid playing with the mud pies, thinking this is as good as life gets, not realizing that not that far away is a beautiful ocean beach that he could enjoy on a holiday. But he thinks that life is just all about finding that mud hole and making mud pies. That's what Isaiah is talking about. The world thinks that we can be ultimately satisfied, fulfilled with things that God never intended to be substitutes for himself. Is that not the nature of idolatry, by the way? The catechism says, what is idolatry? It is having something in place of or alongside of the one true God. That's Lord's Day 34, remember? And the question we have to wrestle is, are we trying to live our lives thinking that God substitutes 
can fill the void that only God himself can fill for us? I can't answer that question for you. You have to answer it for yourself. If only my business was more successful, if only I had the perfect dream home, if only I could retire early, if only things were peaceful in my house, in my family, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? But I want to get back to the question here next about how is it possible that you can buy these things without money and without price? If they are the richest affair. Well, it's because of what God has done by way of his covenants. Incline your ear and come to me, verse 3. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast sure love for David. He's thinking here of 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, where the Lord had promised David that his throne would endure forever. How remarkable in a time when they were seeing the nation of Israel devastated, destroyed, brought low to the ground. And the servant would come and he would establish a kingdom greater than David's kingdom. He would be a king more glorious than King David. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. He's anticipating a time when through the ministry of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus, Jesus would announce all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of the nations. You can buy this food without money, without price, because Jesus Christ has paid the price for you by means of his own suffering, death, and resurrection. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, I simply want to ask, do you hear the call? Do you hear the call? In all the brokenness of life, in the middle of all the shattered dreams, when it seems as though things just continue to get worse and worse and worse, what is it about us? And maybe it's just true for myself, but seems, things seem to be going that direction as you grow older. You say, it just seems to get more difficult. It seems to be more bleak. There seems to be greater opposition to the word of God, the mission of the church. Do you hear the call of God? Those of you who are inclined to be self-sufficient, that is the American dream, is it not? The self-made person, the self-made man, the self-made woman. Do you listen to the call of the gospel this morning? Do you hear it? Why do you labor for that which is not bread? Why do you spend your money on that which will never satisfy? And do you believe in your hearts? Do you really believe? Are you convinced of that truth, that what Jesus offers to you by means of the gospel, the water that refreshes the wine that fills hearts with joy and the milk which satisfies. 
that that truly is the richest affair? If so, come and enjoy. Come, buy, eat, and live. Let's pray. Oh God and Father, I pray that the words of this text this morning would resonate deeply in our souls, that we would be convicted not only of the futility of searching after things apart from you, but also that we would be convinced, every one of us, young or old, whether we are new to the faith or whether there has never been a time where we have not known you as Lord, that we would be convinced that what you offer to us through Jesus Christ is indeed the richest of food. So bless this word to our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.